1: So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. We are tackling, dun, 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 I feel like the distinct need for a dun, dun, dun for you, the intentional relationship model for pediatric SLPs. And that is a very lofty thing. So. how did you learn about this? What courses did you attend? Where well, take us from the beginning, hun?
2: Well, I will start with I've been lucky enough to be mentored by a lot of OTs, and if there's one thing I've learned, and this is not a knock to speech pathologists, this is just a different framework that we go through in grad school versus what OTs framework. Our profession is very deficit based. Our big nine dysphagia, speech sound disorders, AAC, I wouldn't call deficit-based, but a lot of them are focused on the deficit as opposed to focused on the person holistically. Like That's just how we learn. We learn about different treatments. We learn about ways to diagnose, but OT is really love a good model and a good visual, which makes sense because of how they OT scope is so large because they can work on anything that's an activity of daily living because that's what occupations are. And so because of that, they can't have nine big focus areas because there would be too many. So their framework tends to focus more on these bigger models, which I think is beautiful because you can use these models within all these different occupations. And so in conversations with my partner in crime, Karen, who I've been doing lectures with, she introduced me to the intentional relationship model, which is developed through OTs. And with that, also, we've talked a lot about therapeutic use of self, which is more of a counseling philosophy that they've created. So psychology and OT, and for people that don't know, occupational therapy came from the mental health field that's where that grew. So OTs are very heavily involved in mental health as well. And that's something that I think recently, actually, they've edited their scope of practice and how they've phrased that. And because of that, these models have developed, and there are some similar models between the psychology world, the counseling world, and the occupational therapy world. But I don't think that this model should be only used by OTs and psychologists because We know, and if you listen to this podcast, you know how much Michelle and I place emphasis on relationship, especially when it comes to communication, because communication starts from an attachment relationship with caregiver and child and baby. That's where it all starts. Child cries. They don't know why they're crying. Their body just doesn't feel right. Caregiver responds. Child feels better. And you build this relationship, which is communication. So that's where this starts
1: from. That starts at birth. So that relationship starts at birth. So if you take it all the way back to our NICU babies, our babies born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, our babies that have birth trauma or our mothers that have postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety to the severity that it inhibits that initial bond, like these are infants that we're getting that already have traumatic, troublesome relationships from the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And what Greenspan would call that, who developed the floor, DIR floor time or who developed the floor time model, is an affect mismatch. There's a mismatch in the emotion. And then when it comes to those children that are in the NICU, unfortunately, you can't always respond to them in the way that you want to. I had a conversation with a caregiver recently who is going to come on the podcast. I'm really excited. And we were talking about how she's a warrior and she has a <laughs> she NICU did. baby and she listened to her gut against the recommendations of a lot of medical professionals. She told me this story the other day about how she wanted her child to get a bath her child was intubated and she said, I don't care. This child is getting a bath. This child deserves to have a bath. Guess what child loves water. How many (laughs) of our kids that were in the NICU hate water and hate being touched because they never had that experience and never had that exposure and they were on their back so much. So we're learning more and more about sensory systems and how that's impacted by experiences in the NICU, but also think about, we know communication is impacted. We know speech is impacted, but I don't know if we realize part of where that comes from, from that lack of building that attachment early on. And because if this child is, and if you look at the communication matrix, and I won't go into it, but they, I love how they break down pre-intentional and intentional communication before you even get
1: to these behaviors. So pre-intentional is just like,
3: Mm-hmm. The communication
1: matrix, folks, y'all can find online. It is a tool specifically designed for AAC, and it does have a nominal fee attached to it. However, it is an excellent tool. You can it- do
2: five for free, and yes.
1: you can change your email. I don't know if I should say that, but like, I
2: you can get five on each email. But that's but they how- break down. Yes, the they ways down- that kids communicate. I go and they break dog. down and they break down the reasons why they communicate. So pre-intentional communication is they're desatting in the NICU, their heart rate going down, their heart rate raising, they're desatting, their oxygen levels going down. That's a pre-intentional communication. That's me telling you that my body doesn't feel good. I don't know why. And then when you respond and cater to my needs, those needs, I will tell you are met in the NICU because the nurses and the parents will not let that happen. But when I'm crying because I'm uncomfortable or I want to be held or things like that, you can't always respond to that because you're intubated or you're having to be on the billy lights or you're not regulating your temperature very well. So you can't take them out of the isolate for whatever reason. So those set the groundwork for some of these communication difficulties, which we see. And so in thinking about that, we have to realize the value of relationship with both the caregiver and the child that we're working with in regards to therapy and this is my personal opinion, do you think there's amazing research in different strategies and different therapies that techniques that we use specifically, you know, I'm not an Arctic or phonology person. There's so much research out there on which touch cues to use and how to transition from one sound to another. And I'm probably butchering all of this, but it's out there. I know this, but that's the word I know. Minimal bears. But what are you doing with yourself in the session? How are you using, you are your best tool, especially when it comes to working in early intervention and working with neurodivergent children, like you are the best tool in the session. But I think sometimes we forget about that and we don't take the time to look at what we're doing specifically, how our voice is being used, how our body language is being used because those little things can impact children so much and that's therapeutic presence. And so I really love to look at this model because I think it gives us a little bit more of a tool. One thing I will say, and I really, really, there's this book, The Therapeutic Use of Self and Counseling and Psychotherapy. And I just like the way that it's by Linda Finley, I think is her first name. And I can share this resource as well. But what I really like is just the way that she talks about it. She says that therapeutic use of self is a self-aware intertwining of both our professional self, the one that uses knowledge, skill, and technique, and our personal self, which arises from our history, beliefs, personality, and embodied lived experiences. It involves our therapeutic practices that we've learned and our particular way of maintaining a caring, attuned holding presence. In other words, therapeutic use of self involves the totality of our being and doing. It is present in our every interaction. So it acknowledges that we can't go into a session without bringing all of who we are as a person. And we may be shutting part of that off for whatever reason, but I will tell you that that child will pick up on that. Unfortunately, what this means is that we have to work on ourselves. If you're going to be in this field, it is a constant work on what you're bringing to the table. And that can be hard sometimes. I have experienced a significant amount of trauma in my life and I have to work through what may be triggering for me, how I'm responding to that child and that family And it's a lot of work, like really trying to build these relationships and being in tune with families is exhausting because every family needs something differently. And it doesn't mean that we can't make mistakes or bring some of those things that we may not love about ourselves, but knowing why and knowing where they come from is really important.
1: If that makes sense. So This week, I honestly, on top of everything else that was going on, that was joyful and wonderful. This week was very triggering for me. And the last week I've had a colleague reach out because she is leaving a domestic abuse situation and she wanted guidance. I had another colleague stop me in the hall at Skisha and she was leaving a domestic abuse situation, had just left. She was one week out and got an Instagram message. Thank you from a colleague who was two weeks out, and that is joyful and empowering. But at the same time, if I allow myself and my exhaustion to slip back into it, I can fall right back into that deep, dark, scary place. And on top of everything, on Tuesday, we had a caregiver involved in a sex trafficking incident, and myself and the interpreter and service coordinator had to work to get her and child safe. So make sure that y'all know your community bases for support. But because of all of that, my therapeutic use of self was utterly spent, hence me crashing on Thursday to recover and recoup. But privy to all of this was my new intern riding shotgun in the car, watching and learning and taking it all in. And she saw me go through my strategies and my exercises to regroup and reset And I had to in the car between patients because otherwise I would be no good. And I would walk in the door carrying all of that, for lack of a better phrase, all my junk with me. But like I have to physically, and for me, I mean, everybody knows, like I'm a Christian. So first and foremost, I put the power of prayer on myself. But then I have to like shake it. Irene, the OT that I worked with, would say she would just pull it off of me. But like it feels like you're just pulling off stuff so that you can be present. But those traumas make us who we are because we have overcome them. We have been empowered by them. And it's through our cracks that our light shines, right? Like that's how we shine.
2: Well, and we doing, and I'm almost finished with the Asha Leadership Development Program, which I would highly recommend anyone Mm -hmm. applying to. It's phenomenal. They had us do our Emotional Intelligence assessment, the EQI is the one that they used. And they talk so much about, you know, you have these things that are natural to you. I'm a very emotional person. Mm-hmm. I care for people. Advocating for myself is not a strength of mine. I'm getting better at it. But th- what I love about that program is that they talk about how, you know, you ha- like, you have your, I forget what the word, term they use, but you have your growth areas and you have your areas that are your strengths, sometimes those things that are viewed strengths in the EQI actually can be weaknesses because of how much you pull from them. And so I'm not saying we have to be these perfect humans to work in and have this perfect sense of self. I'm saying we have to be aware. We have to be aware of what we're bringing to the table and aware of where our growth areas are. And we're working. And I really, really just love Well, other things she has to say, and then we'll go into the intentional relationship model, but she talks a lot about how we make choices about how and when to intervene. And we are continuously adapting to these families. We might at the beginning really listen and put on this professional boundary. And then we might start to build more trustworthiness and disclose a little bit more as the relationship grows. But she says how our use of self is not something that we do to the client. Instead, it emerges within the specific relationship and evolves as we adapt over time to the client's needs and the relational context while they adapt to us. So it's about being a human being in relation with another human being. And I think we have to start there. We go in so early with what's the deficit? What's a therapeutic technique I can use? What's a goal? And... That is so minute in the context of that entire child and that entire family. And we have to start with the relationship and who they are as a person. And every family is going to need something different, and that's okay. But we have to give ourselves grace too to figure out what the relationship is going to be and not feel like we have to have all the answers at first because when we do that, we're already setting this boundary and it's not leaving room for that relationship.
1: So That's, wait, isn't that like in ABA therapy, don't they call that pairing? Like the first couple of weeks when they're just pairing, like they're trying to build a relationship. Cause that's what I think of. Like the first time I didn't know they did that in ABA therapy. Theoretically it happens. (laughs) I've seen. (laughs) Needless to say, we're not fans of most ABA approaches we've encountered, but I did have one really good ABA therapist that I've worked with. Granted, her wife is a speech pathologist. So like she sees the world differently. She goes, our pillow talk is really unique. (laughs) I was like, I love that. But Mm -hmm. she was talking to me about like, how they bond, how they pair those first couple of weeks. But because some patients need you to come here, high energy, high octane, lots of fun. And then other ones, I'm gonna take it back and go slow, which is, I mean heaven Betsy's you and I have had conversations at the end of the day where we're like, how are you doing? And you're like, I'm here. <laughs> It's just, you've done this, you've ping ponged with your body. And I'm like, Mm
2: -hmm. well, in the OTs I worked with too, we have had a lot of, like I will come out of a session sometimes and be so exhausted. And Dylan Hartley, who is a great OT who mentored me a ton, he talks so much about how it's the patients that have such a different energy level to you and need that really, really pull it out of you. He is very high energy. So, for him, those high energy kids don't take a lot out of him because they're both up here. I'm the opposite. So, if I have a kid who is like all over the place, I have to then meet them and then I have to bring them back down. And that is exhausting. But I also have, in knowing that about myself, I'm able to go into a session and prepare for a patient that may be taking more energy out of me and be like, okay, I need to regulate. What do I need to do within the session too? Because if you're not meeting any of your needs with that child, then you're not any good to them either. So you know, maybe we both need to swing. Maybe we both need to go in the cloud and climb and just sit there for a minute and co-regulate. Because again, self-regulation is important, but you can't self-regulate until you learn to co-regulate. Like you just, just it's just too hard. And we co-regulate all the time as adults. So don't get me started on every kid needing to self-regulate. That's ridiculous. So I take the intentional, to intentional
1: relationship. relationship. Yeah,
2: <laughs> the intentional relationship model has a couple different principles. Like I said, and that we can post on the Instagram, the chart, because again, you ask any OT, they love a good like circles and arrows type of chart that this goes to this, but this also goes to this. It's really, they're big fans, but there's 10 underlying principles of the intentional relationship model. But they talk about how it's defining the therapeutic use of self and outlining reasoning processes that these therapists may use when working with clients, which is cool because you're like, okay, I have these principles that I can use within this session. It's not just me going blind and trying to navigate. Do I go blind a lot? Yeah. Because you and I both have talked about how we're very much in So I don't always know why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is helping me to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. So 10 underlying principles, you have critical self-awareness is the key to intentional use of self, which is what we've been talking about already. You have to be aware of why you're doing what you're doing in order to better use your own presence. If you don't know why you react to something a certain way, which again, we don't always all know, but you're not going to be able to prevent yourself from having a specific reaction with a child. And you're not going to be able to grow in that area as well. This is tough. It's very, very tough to work on yourself and to analyze yourself, especially when you've gone through certain things and you don't want to think about it. I also was a psychology major. So I overanalyze myself all the time. It's one of my favorite things to do. Just ask Michelle, but that's the intentional part. Like you should be going into a session using you as a tool, very intentionally. I am very intentional with where I place my body. When I'm with a child from a trauma-informed lens, I am not above the child. When I go to pick up a child in the waiting room or with a parent, I don't care if the parent's sitting or standing. If the child is below me, I'm getting below them. To show them that I'm not trying to show some sense of control over them. Number two, interpersonal self discipline is fundamental to effective use of self. Self discipline is very hard Mm -hmm. for a lot of us, me included. But, like they're saying, be aware of yourself and then have the discipline of having a little bit more control over what we do. Three, it's necessary to keep head before heart which is difficult so hard a lot do. of us they're not saying don't use your heart but use your head first and so for me sometimes and Karen and I talk a lot about how she the OT is wonderful she observes everything and I feel everything but I feel it and I know I'm feeling it and then I take a step back and I say what am I feeling because I'm well aware that if I just act on the feeling it's not going to be very helpful mindful empathy is required to know one's client, mm. And I like the mindful empathy because you're not just sitting here and feeling that this family's going through something or that this child is, you're not just relating to their emotions, but you're being intentional and processing with your head of where that's coming from. But we need to have,
1: and we're going to have empathy anyways. So being aware of where that's coming from is important. That's why I go back to the Maslow scale of need. The Maslow scale Mm -hmm. of hierarchical need is how I can balance my empathetic self. Because if I go with my heart, then I'm going to want to rush in and save Mm -hmm. everybody. And I know that that Mm -hmm. just runs in our family and that's just who we are. I come from a stock of people that are givers, right? Yep. But yep. if I'm able to feel it, recognize it, and then take it back to, this is where they are on their scale. This is where the, and knowing that the caregiver scale versus the child scale could be two different scales. Yeah. And that's hard to, the caregiver might be worried about like paying rent and the child still feels safe and solid because the caregiver has been able to match. Yep. And then yep. that requires two different levels of self. But that is a really good tool to have in your toolbox to know that.
2: Yeah. And even after your lecture at Skisha, where you talked a lot about AAC and caregiver coaching, Mm -hmm. I had a caregiver that came in and there's a lot of outside factors happening and they were stressed and anxious about being able to use any of these strategies because there's not as much time and there's a lot on their plate. And so I was able to sit there, have empathy for this caregiver, but also think realistically of what can I actually do? Okay. I can provide you access to social work that can help you try and find resources. And we can sit here and discuss one routine that you do during the day that you're already connecting with your child and implement one thing this week. I can do my job and be able to problem solve through to make this task as easy as possible for you within the week. And so that's where I was able to to use that and not get too wrapped up in the empathy that I had for them. Mm -hmm. Number five, it is important to continually develop one's interpersonal knowledge base. So how are we interacting with other people? How do I analyze my own relationships and how I'm engaging in those? And what I love about this model too is is these are all very growth mindset. Mm -hmm. You're always growing. You're, You're never reaching a final destination. If you are in this growth mindset, you're going to be able to better understand yourself and better understand your patients and your clients. But this isn't a final, you'll reach this point and you're good to go. Being within this growth mindset. Sorry. mm -hmm, mm -hmm, No, but that's the state that they want you to be in. Mm -hmm. Provided that they are flexibly and purely applied, a wide range of therapeutic modes can work and be utilized interchangeably. And this is specifically for OT, but I like that it talks about how we need to be flexible. We need to be able to change with what techniques we're using. Not every technique is right for every patient and every family. And I just love the words that they use too. It's flexibly and purely applied. Mm. So, how are we implementing these techniques? Are we, and flexibly and purely, you don't always think of going together, mm. but I think that makes complete sense that you can adjust, but it's also to the core of what this technique is. Is this, are we using the core? Or are we changing it too much within the context of our own biases? I guess is how I would view that.
1: My face no, just was in the most unflattering oh. position. I was thinking, You might have
2: to turn your camera off and then turn it back on. That's what's been happening. Oh,
1: That's yeah, what maybe. I had to do for you. I'm I'm um, sure it's because my laptop took a flying leap and landed in the floorboard.
2: Yep. The client defines a successful relationship. Mm -hmm. So we can't go in with our idea of what we want the relationship to look like. That client, that patient, that family, it's our goal to create the relationship that they need to be successful because we're bringing in our own lens of our relationships and that's fine. That's authentic to who we are, but This isn't our relationship to define, it's their relationship to define. But
1: how different is that from when we were taught in grad school?
2: Like grads,
1: but I mean, to be honest, like grad school, we are taught that we are subject matter experts. And unfortunately, a lot of us go in with into sessions with the training and experiences in our clinical practicums where we are essentially the authoritative figure, and they have to do what it is that we want them to do in all things. But that completely flips the script and puts precedence on why we're supposed to focus on the counseling part of our profession, and which is within our scope of practice. That feels very strongly. Also, folks, we're live, but Yumi gave me the potential to have people ask questions live, like, Via audio. So if you want to actually ask a question, I think you just raise your hand and then I can allow you to talk live if you want. So, first time we've ever done that. But also, Erin didn't know I was throwing that curveball at her. But if y'all want, feel free to raise your hand and you can ask a question live. So, all right, continue, Erin.
2: And this one is a little bit more OT activity focusing must be balanced with interpersonal focusing. But I think about that in the way of like communication. Mm -hmm. must be focused also within the relationship. So how is this communication impacting? Because in reality, what we are working on as speech language pathologists is helping them better communicate with others, whether that is through saying their wants and needs, which I know we all really dive into pretty quickly, but connect, like, how are they building relationships? Are they able to express information? Are they able to show affection? affection and connection and relationships are just as important as wants and needs and information sharing. And honestly, I would argue most of the kids that we see, we add goals for wants and needs right away, but they're pretty good at communicating those for the most part. It may not be in the way that neurotypical children are communicating their wants and needs, but Mm -hmm. a lot of times when caregivers come in to see us from wanting to work on language and communication, it's because they can't connect or know all the things their child likes and how they want to say things. Parents can read their kids' minds. So we have to think about that too, in bringing in what does this relationship need from a communication standpoint? Also, not just can the kid tell me if they want to eat? because let's face it, they can. They go to the high chair, they point to the food, they cry. They open the, the pantry one thing drawer. that they <laughs> the one thing that they can communicate really well, now we're making them say it a different way. If I was at a concert listening to my favorite band, and the artist stopped every 30 seconds so that I would have to say, I want them to keep playing music in another language, I would run away and scream. That is what we're asking a lot of our kids to do when we play their favorite song on YouTube, or we give them their favorite food, and then we pause it and like anxiously want them to say more.
1: I'm guilty of that. I have literally, I'm guilty of it too,
2: but you don't, but like, we have to think like, That's Rachel.
1: Pause and then have them ask Miss Rachel or turn on the YouTube. And this is how I shifted. Instead of stop, go, stop, go, on, off, like turn it on, but then have them request what show they want to watch. And then let them watch it because that's a natural. I have that discussion with the boys last night. It was Packed Awesome Family Debate. What movie do you want to watch for Saturday movie night? We ended up going with Turner and Hooch, all time classic with Tom Hanks. The boys thought that was great. Hooch is a beastly, ghastly, smelly dog. And it was wonderful. But there was a debate about that. And that's a natural conversation. And that's how I shifted from on, off, stop, go to what do they want to begin with? Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I do it. But I just, how do you, I just want to think. We have a question from Nicole. How do you get the most out of the trials by doing that? The on-off so, or the requesting the show?
2: Well, so if I'm answering your question wrong, tell me and we'll answer it. But what I would say is that we have to shift our focus a little bit from how many trials are they doing and how meaningful are the trials? Yes. Because if, if I really wanted to watch this show versus this show and I communicated it the right way and you got it and we got to watch what I wanted, That's honestly going to have more impact on their communication than you stopping it and making them say more, because there's not as much meaning to that. They already know that you know what they want. You're just making them do something to get it, which is more, I want you to comply with what I'm asking than I want to
1: help you be understood. Does that make sense? Yes, because we're working on that relationship there. Because that, and I had one mom, bless her, she got really into programming the device. And she was like, I always turn on Miss Rachel for her. And it's a 19 month old and she's on a level three on LAMP, which is astronomically high, right? Mm -hmm. But this child, she would program her device with her preferred shows. Her fringe vocab is her preferred shows on like YouTube or whatnot. And so mom kept moving the pig show. Peppa Pig? Peppa Pig. Thank you. She kept moving Peppa Pig icon around on her device. She goes, I didn't really think that she wanted to watch it, so I moved it to see if she could. And I was like, you have to stop moving it because she needs to know where it is every time because she was getting mad or frustrated with her mom. And she goes, but I didn't think she liked it because she doesn't, you know, interact with it the same that she does with Miss Rachel. And I was like, sometimes we just want to watch a show to have it playing in the background to turn our brains off, right? So, like for Mm -hmm. me. The original Hellboy is one of my all-time favorite movies. Like, it's a classic, right? But I want that, show. that Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You and I don't have the same taste in movies. We know no, <laughs> Yes. But, like, it's so good. But that's my favorite nap movie because I have it memorized. So yep. I want something playing in the background so that I can, like, take a nap to... And when she wants Peppa Pig on, she wants to play like a fine motor activity and that's Mm -hmm. a struggle area for her, but it's a comfort. She can just have Peppa Pig going on in the background. And when I explained it to mom like that, it was just like, okay. And you know what? She stopped moving it. And so now she just, but it's really cool to see the way their relationship and bond has grown around through the use of an AAC device. Okay, continue. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, as far as research, I would say Michelle Theron out of FSU. Sorry. I got excited. Michelle Theron, Dr. Michelle Theron out of FSU. Her entire research is on building. Oh my God. Oh, I'll have to go grab my notebook. I just recorded her. Her episode is coming out. I think not till July. Dang. That's really far away. But her whole research, her body of research is on friendship and relationship building through an AAC device. And it's phenomenal. It's T-H-I-E-R-R-I-E-N. And she's highly published. And she's also the topic chair for pediatric AAC devices for ASHA in Boston. Theron, yes, there it is. Thank you, Erin.
2: Well, and also there's, and I pull from a lot of different research that I've known. There's a lot of research on how autistic kids do not learn best through repetition. Yes. And I can say I have a family member who would come home from school with homework and be very frustrated. The family member is autistic, would be very frustrated because they would make him do homework. He goes, I already learned it. I don't understand. Like, so there's some research on like making that repetition of something that they've learned is not necessarily the best. And then there's a lot of research on the benefits of play and relationship and how you need a lot less repetitions. Karen Purvis talks about how you need about 200 repetitions to learn a skill. Maybe it's 400. It's a lot. Unless you're doing it in play 400. Thank you. She's like, I already know this one. I was like 200 didn't seem right, but 20 to 10, if it's in play. So if it's in a meaningful context, But the point of play is it has to be child-directed. And so if you're directing what they're doing, that's not play at all and you're gonna need those 400 repetitions. So that's another aspect. But I'll try, we can pull some resources too for that as well. Application of the model must be informed by its OT core values and ethics, but I think we can use the same with speech therapy. And then cultural competency is central to practice. So we can't forget that we have to And one thing I will say too, and we talked about this in the episode we did about religion and faith is that if you go into this as a relationship and you go into your therapy sessions and and working with these families authentically, it allows you to learn from them as well. It allows you to say, I'm coming in and I am a tool and I want to better learn about you and your child or your grandchild, whoever the caregiver is, and I may make mistakes and I want us to have a good enough relationship that you can tell me if I made a mistake or if something isn't working for you, but you have to build that relationship with them first for them to feel comfortable doing that. Because especially with families of other cultures, there oftentimes is a mistrust Mm -hmm. because of history and things that we know about, especially with someone that's in the medical field. So that is I think a huge part of this model, but we also have to take the time to learn about their culture. And also if you can show that you're trying and you're learning, that's going to show so much more. I had a caregiver the other day that said, cause I understand a lot of Spanish. My family is, I have a, my Tio Pepe is from Chile and both my aunts speak Spanish. And I understood a lot of what this caregiver was saying. And they said to me, you know, I, I felt so comfortable because I felt that you were trying to understand me. And so it's not even we, that we have to have it perfect. They just want to see that we're trying, Mm
1: -hmm. but that's, that's going in with an open to understand, seek to understand thought process. So, one conversation that's come up is how we recommend food or give guidance on food during evaluation and treatments. And that conversation you've not and I have had a lot lately, but also Aaron's on the topic chair or on the topic committee with me for pediatric feeding disorders for November. And one topic that keeps coming up from all of the members is how are we making recommendations or asking about what foods we use in therapy or their relationship with meals, right? I mean, if we're looking at it through my, my lens, we have a set time for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We have a set time for snacks. We have anticipated, like you can have one piece of chocolate after dinner. That is part of our routine, right? That's our daily routine that's unique to our family. But what time of day do other cultures eat? When is their largest meal of the day? What is their main food group? I mean, we have Lent coming up. I mean, you know, do they add something? Did they take something away? But if you have a child that has a PFD and now we're eliminating red meats and we're going to fish on Friday, you see what I'm saying? There's all of those. But being able to sit back and say, I don't know, is huge Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we have unfortunately been trained historically that, again, I go back to you have to look like you know what you're doing. I think that appearance of you fake it till you make it mentality, I think that can actually do, I truly think that that can do harm. I don't know. I'm really in hopes Mm -hmm. that our committee can partner with the diversity equity inclusion accessibility committee and that we can like create a topic at asha where we like deep dive into how to do better in our little unique subset of the world of speech pathology
2: so there's also and then what i like too is they talk about how the therapeutic relationship it is the therapist's Mm -hmm. responsibility to foster that relationship And they say how every action, including verbal and nonverbal communication, which we know that's something we should know very well,
1: Mm
3: -hmm.
2: is purposeful and aims to facilitate the occupational or the, I would say communication engagement with the clients. If we're looking from a speech pathology perspective, that also does, like I said, sound exhausting that everything that you're doing in the session with that child, every word that you're saying, every move that you're making is purposeful, Mm -hmm. but- I think once you start to foster, it gets easier. It gets a lot easier when you know your strengths and you know where they're, you're coming from. And so it identifies though that you have this client, this patient in front of you that has their own experiences. They have their own challenges and there's different interpretations of how that's going to impact every situation. Though mm-hmm. so these are all interpersonal characteristics that we're talking about. Okay, the therapist needs to learn more about their interpersonal characteristics. And we also need to know how we interpret them. And Karen and I, in our presentation, talk about, and I'm going to butcher the theory name, but it's a psychology term. And it starts with an F. And Karen talked about it in lecture. But anyway, it's this idea that when somebody else does something, a behavior that we don't view as polite or how we would do something, we look at it as they're bad they did this because they're bad. But if we do the behavior, we know it's because of something that happened. You know, if we're speeding, oh, well, I have to get somewhere. But if somebody else is speeding and they cut me off, I'm like, "Mm," and I may say some choice words because I'm like, that person stinks. So we have to, instead of looking at, you know, this autistic child and say they did this because they were trying to be bad, what are these other aspects of them as a person? So they're going to have their own communication style, which is, What we're focused on, how are they communicating first? We have to understand that. And my point too, we have to understand how they're communicating first as opposed to going into how we want them to be communicating because they're communicating a lot of ways. And I will tell families in my first session with them, I will say, if I haven't done the eval or if I'm doing the eval, your child is way more than this evaluation and what I'm going to see in this hour. It would be unkind of me to think that I know how to treat this child after an hour. Because they are so much more than that. I am going to spend our time together learning about your child and learning about your family so that we can support what's going to be the most beneficial and improve your relationship, improve your quality of life. And there were a couple of patients that I was sad to leave all my patients. There were a couple of patients that I had been working with for just a couple of months. And I said to that family, I said, I'm so sad that I don't get to keep learning about your child because that's what we get to do. We get to take the time to do that. And until you, I just think it's very, I don't like to use unkind may not be the best word. It's very irresponsible to think that we know this child, like there's so much more to them. I learn about my patients every single day and then it better informs how I help them navigate this world. That's not set up for them.
1: Their tone of voice. Yes. But that goes back to a dynamic assessment. When we actually do, and it's one, if you own the PLS 5, may I challenge you to take it and chuck it? Because ASHA has a whole (laughs) position statement out on like why the validity, specificity, and sensitivity of the PLS-5 actually is so horribly normed. Because what they did was they took children that typically developing mild and severe, they didn't even norm it on a moderate delay. So it pulled Mm -hmm. all the standard deviations up one, right? But when you actually do a dynamic assessment of learning where a child's language skills are, you are pulling... A spontaneous MLU. You're pulling a comprehensive language assessment. You also
2: don't need a standardized test. Uh-huh. And if a yes. question on an assessment is not culturally appropriate or respectful, chuck it. Mm-hmm. Don't and, ask it.
1: No. And how many of our children have vision deficits or are deaf, and or they have such a significant PMH like HIE or NAS or a severe bleed, that these tests don't norm to them. That's where we pull in in in-depth observations and where Mm -hmm. you can do criterion reference assessments such as the Rosetti, right? But it is not, when it's a dynamic, it is not one standardized score. Now I immediately hear everybody going, yeah, but insurance wants it. I'm actually gonna challenge that. Because I have been able to get children qualified for services by being able to explain holistically, this is where they are in depth. Like this is where their social skills mm-hmm. are. This is where their language is from a spoken perspective. However, when we look at the PMH and then tie in gross motor, fine motor, global development, yeah. and compare it to, this is why we have to know like Piaget's norms and like the yeah. light, when we actually connect these dots and lay it out, insurances will, I mean, you may have to do, what is it, a peer-to-peer? This is very funny to me because it's never yeah. actually a peer-to-peer. There's no actual other speech pathologist on the other end. No, Somebody who doesn't have a degree that's like passing judgment on our reports. But if you go in and you explain it, should your report come into question, for the most part, they're going to adhere to it if you are able to build a solid case But we also, this is where,
2: and if you want to learn more, Karen and I will talk all about it and we're developing a six hour course also, but we don't actually know what we're asking kids when we're asking them questions on standardized tests. Like you said, their vision, there's so many components of what we're asking for the specific milestone as opposed to a capacity. We'll go into it. We don't have time right now. Come to our lecture. So you have (laughs) tone of voice, body language, facial expression, response to change, level of trust. I love that they have this in here. How much do they trust you? Because this child may do amazing things when they're with their caregiver at home, but if they don't trust you, then you're not going to get much out of them.
1: Need for control. As such is appropriate. Sorry. As such is appropriate. Healthy and appropriate for the child to demonstrate that difference. Stranger
2: danger is great. But what I'm saying, build the relationship. That's totally typical for them not to trust you. Need for control. Some people have a strong need for control. Do they have trauma? If a child has trauma, they're going to have a need for control. That is just how our bodies respond. And we're going to need to give them some control. Nothing grinds my gears more. That's probably why there's a lot of things that grind my gears. Then when we take control from kids, just for the fun of it, like, I'm just going to choose this because I want, why, why, why are we doing that to them? That is so ridiculous. You don't
1: need to control which book they read. No, I don't know. As as a mom, I'm so freaking guilty of that. I hate playing risk because the boys gang up on me and I lose. So when we have play, when we play board games and we play a lot of board games, the boys always want to play risk. And I'm like, no, I will play, but I am not playing that game. And it's me taking control, but they cheat. And that's not a fun. No, but that's for a little bit of a reason. Like there's some times where people just want to.
2: To see how kids, and its they're already oh. lost so much control by coming to see you. So we have to think about that. Approach for asserting needs. How can they, we should know this very well because we're working communication. Predisposition to giving feedback, response mm-hmm. to feedback, response mm-hmm. to human diversity, orientation toward relating. How many of our autistic kids do we work with just have a trouble relating in general? And that's so hard. And because they have trouble relating, they might not want to engage with a peer. And then when you sit there and play a game with them and you say, "Okay, your turn. Okay, it's your turn. Now it's your turn." Now like, "No, I don't want to do it." Preference for touch. That's a big one because touch our skin is our biggest organ and we have all these receptors in it. So how do they respond to touch? We need to know. Do they benefit from touch? Can I hold their hand and it helps them get my attention or do I need to be very sensitive to it? and help with positive touch. And then interpersonal reciprocity. So what's the sharing that we have together? So these are all interpersonal characteristics that a child may have that we have to be aware of. And the thing that I also like that they go into, and I'll just run through this really quickly because we don't have as much more time and I'll actually put this resource on here for everyone, but there's these events that are going to happen in therapy. There are things that we cannot control that are going to happen that we're going to have to work through. Karen Purvis always talks about rupture and repair in a relationship. And a lot of that, when there is rupture and you build repair, that's how good relationships are built. If there's no rupture and you don't have to work through to repair the relationship, that's going to be more difficult when there is something that happens down the road, but you're also not learning how that person communicates as well. So you're going to have events where a kid expresses strong emotion. I love a kid with big feelings. They're my favorite kids to work with. I love that you express your feelings probably because I never did as a kid and that's okay. So how do we help them express those feelings? How do we help them regulate after those feelings? How do we help them communicate those feelings better? So they don't have such a strong reaction, intimate self-disclosure, like Michelle talked about that. We're going to have instances where caregivers disclose things to us. And how do we respond to that? How do we support them? How do we Show mindful empathy for it How Do we know if we're a mandated reporter, what we have to report and what we don't, those are things that are going to happen. Power dilemmas. There's always going to be a power struggle that in any sort of relationship, just try and date as a single 29 year old. That's just <laughs> power struggles there because- <laughs> Don't get me started on men and their ego. But
1: anyway, there's a dynamic. Okay, I'll call. I want nieces and nephews. So somebody find me an amazing dynamic, slightly Pennsylvania. Yeah, in Cincinnati, I'll call.
2: Nonverbal cues. We have to read their nonverbal cues. What's their facial expression telling us? Are we reading these little things instead of focusing on how they're saying them? Crisis points, a stressful event where the child that you're working with becomes distracted and they can't engage with what they're doing. Things hit them all the time. Do we know, do we hit a crisis point and then we learn what their buildup was to that? So now I know next time where I can push you and where your zone of proximal development is. These are all things that we learn from resistance and reluctance, boundary testing. Kids all love to test boundaries. Michelle knows this better than I do. Empathetic breaks. So maybe a therapist didn't understand a communication and now that child feels like they don't understand them at all. How many times do we pretend that we don't understand communication and now the child doesn't think that we have empathy for
1: them? That's something to think about. But wait, do we have the tools in our toolbox to recognize that? Yep. To repair that. Yes, because sometimes we may not recognize that the child's trust boundary has been broken. Also, think about your patients that have a seizure if they are having uh-huh. absence seizures and they're drifting, and you're at, and I had this with the child, we were having this great bonding moment where we were washing our hands, which was a huge step just to like touch water. And if we, in the process of that, he was standing adjacent to his mother and he had an absence seizure and he came back, but we were in the middle of something that was a huge growth and he came back and he didn't know where he was, what was going on. And it was, A crisis point for him Mm -hmm. and it broke that relationship. It took time to build that trust back up, and it wasn't anything that I had done. It was a seizure. Yep. Yep.
2: And the whole point of this is to talk about how, but these are also things that happen in life. These are things that this child is going to experience with people in life, and we can't prevent them. And if we try to prevent them and have them in this beautiful box where nothing, You know, I love floor time so much and people have this misconception that it's just let them do whatever they want. And there's no boundaries. And this is just to give them a safe space to learn these things and to experience. And there's these modes that you can relate to a client. And this is the last thing we'll talk about today. You can advocate, collaborate, empathize, encourage, instruct, and problem solve. And I would say I use all of these within all of my sessions to some extent, but to think about and have this context of knowing better what you're doing when you're doing it can also help. Sometimes, you know, you, you recognize these patterns and what caregivers might need. Okay. Well, this is a moment where I need to be empathetic towards the situation. And Nicole, if you click that link that I put up there, this is all on that website. Chicago has this great resource that's taken from there's intentional relationship, OT use of self, this book, And from AOTA, it's all in there. It's perfect. I've been reading from it, but being able to recognize what you're doing when you're doing it. And then maybe, you know, I start with maybe a family needs more empathy from the beginning and we need to advocate a little bit more. But then as I give them these tools through instructing and problem solving, we can collaborate more and they can come in with more ideas. So how are we shifting? What modes we're using within what sessions based on their progress? And so maybe when we're in a mode of more collaboration, I don't need as many sessions. It's just a. Bunny. Oh wait, I, it's not to everyone. That's why I put it in the wrong one. Michelle can see it. There you go. It's in there. Yeah, I'm sorry. I got you. <laughs> and so, do you see it you now? You know, maybe, maybe when maybe when we're in a more collaborative mode, that's when we can go to more teletherapy and we can not have to have as many direct sessions too. Because my goal is, Michelle always says, my goal is for that family not to need me anymore. My goal is to be that team's coach and their advocate where they can come in and they can say we have these tools, we have these baseline skills, we have built this great foundation and our relationship has grown enough that I feel comfortable continuing this as we go. I don't know. I think it's just good to be aware of. And I really love where they come from a place of, this is just something that you're always working on with every family. There's no end destination. They know when they've reached a point where they might need a break. They know when they've reached. And that's the other thing too every family is different in what their view of success is. And Mm -hmm. that may shift and they may come in wanting one thing and you may help them see, I feel like, especially with a lot of the autistic kids that I work with, they come in wanting them to hit these milestones. And then you talk to them and you're like, what do you want for them for their life? Mm -hmm. And that's when they may say, I want them to be happy. Okay. Then let's focus. This is what I'm seeing that their interests are. And what research is telling us is that for them to have better mental health, it's not necessarily meeting these milestones and masking, it's helping them find their authentic selves. And that may shift and they may look at you and be like, you're not the therapist for me. And you may plant the seed and they may come back and all the things. But this is a human and a human. Like we're human and we have to stop going into things thinking we can fix them and thinking that we have all the right answers. And I love that this model is like, you don't, you're never gonna have all the right answers, but you can build this relationship and foster this development and foster this caregiver.
1: This gives the ability to give grace for us to be perpetual, lifelong learners. And it also gives us grace not to engage in a disability deficit mindset. That is joy. It's permission to give joy. Mm -hmm. You do. Do you guys have any questions? I was like, that was such a phenomenal job explaining something. No, but it was so good. Are there questions? And seriously, y'all can ask them live if you want. <laughs> I highly doubt. They're like, no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, okay, Nicole. Yeah, I'm going to allow you to talk. Okay. Oh, we've okay. never done this before.
2: This is so fun. Michelle, I'm shocked you know. Yes, I think we can hear you if we stop talking.
3: <laughs> Excellent. All right. So my question is, so I have a parent whose want for their autistic child is to eliminate scripting. And I just mm. want some tips on empathizing with the parent, but also letting them know that, you know, scripting is kind of part of who that child is yes. and how mm-hmm. they can use that as a tool for them instead of presenting it as a negative.
2: My first thought is I would want to know why they want scripting to be eliminated? Is it because they feel like it makes them look different and they want them to be more typical? Is it because, because I would think another thought I would have is do they understand how much we script? Mm -hmm. Like, do they understand how much we use scripts in our everyday life to communicate things, especially when we're stressed? Like, could you take that angle of helping them see what scripts they're using or how like that is a part of neurotypical language as well to kind of bring in, and maybe that's just what their child, I mean, not maybe that is what their child is pulling from a little bit more until they can get their own integrated analytic language, or is it, they've heard that scripting is more a sign of autism and they're afraid of, you know what I mean? Like I would want to know where that is coming from.
3: The parent believes that the scripting is impeding, like the child is in his own head and not focused on the tasks that are being given to him in school. So then
1: I would challenge with, and not necessarily challenge, I would empower the caregiver such that they learn about Gestalt language processes themselves. Because if we, and I don't personally know this woman, but I love her approach. The meaningful speech SLP on Instagram actually has a ton of great resources and they're, sage and delivered professionally, which let's face it, that's rare on the world of Instagram, but the caregiver needs to understand that for neurodiverse individuals, this is just a typical language learning process. And sometimes if they can see if they have a roadmap, if they can actually physically see the different stages, that helps them kind of understand where their child could be on that process in that zone of proximal development, if spoken language, and that could be the final endpoint destination or their child could progress through. I mean, that's unique to each child. Like my brother-in-law scripts, he's 45, he's autistic, but he scripts movie shows and TV shows, and he has set patterns that he will say all day, every day. But that caregiver needs to be empowered with that knowledge base. And sometimes if you take that off of yourself and you give them the written documents explaining that, that helps them.
3: Yeah, I think that would definitely help. And it's an ELL situation as well. So it'll be a unique situation to um, Uh, interpret. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: So then what is, can I ask, what is their native language? Portuguese. Oh, amazing. Okay. So then is the child scripting in English or in Portuguese or
3: both? English. So he was learning English as well in his native country and then moved here in August. So he already had some English background. So I conducted a dynamic assessment on him. But Mm -hmm. as I was saying, I actually kind of pulled from what you guys were saying about that relationship piece of, I am still learning about him Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, because of course, you know, sometimes our artistic kids do one thing, one time and one thing, another, depending on the circumstances and what has happened during their day and things like that. So I feel like sometimes I want to give these parents a good approach to not creating a barrier in their relationship, but giving Mm -hmm. them, like you were saying the tools to be able to, you know, navigate the neurodiversity that autism is.
2: Yes. And that's the hard, I think that's the other part of the relationship as we talked all about our relationship with the patient, our relationship with the caregiver, but then we're also having to understand the caregiver's relationship to the child and how they're mm-hmm. like, what they're in the grief cycle process of. And that's a whole, you know, you may be like, this kid's ready for this and I'm, I got it. And I'm like building a relationship with caregiver, but if they're not seeing the same things in the child that you're seeing, then having to point those out in a certain way, but then you also have to understand, are they, you know, do they need facts? Do they need emotion behind it? Do they need, it's so much to process.
1: We actually had Corinne Zooms Zims, Corinne, I'm going to butcher it, darling. Episode 207, First Bite Musical AAC magic. She creates scriptionaries for her patients and oh she talks God. about the scriptionaries. And then the scriptionaries they go through, and as a family with the family, they go through and they decipher what does the script mean? What is he communicating through the script to like take into account emotions or stress levels? And I just think that that is just yeah. like beautiful. So that was something that I mean I don't have anybody that has on my current caseload right now that communicative via spoken language but I'm itching to try that. So
3: I love that. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank thank and you and I wonder what the research questioner. Yay. I know <laughs> and I don't know what the
2: research is on like bilingual and I would think that this child is picking up on scripts in English because mm-hmm. the analytic part of the English language is probably pretty difficult because English is hard my professor in grad school would yell at me because he's like spelling in English, just just all these rules and it makes all the sense, but it's confusing. And the emotion and the affect in whatever scripts is what he's picking on. He's like, I get that emotion. And that's why I'm communicating in the script. And so for him to connect is probably what he's craving right now. So, you know, how can we communicate to Matt? Like he's trying to build these relationships. He's picking up on this emotion and that's where the script is coming from. And we don't want to take that away from him because that could hurt his relationships too. But that's hard. That's very hard to communicate all that, especially yeah, he, when you're after.
3: Yeah, he will interpret for his mom, but his mom does not speak English at all. Mm-hmm. And then he learned most of his English. They were learning it in school, but mom says that he learned most of his English through like TV, TV shows, cartoons, mm-hmm. things like yeah. that. So mm-hmm.
1: So then I would empower mom with the levels of Gestalt language and what that looks like. And then y'all sit down and do a scriptionary and figure out what those scripts mean to him, like how he's using them. And that might also, that might be really good for mom to realize the progress and the joy that that little one is conveying to help her work through any potential grief or anger cycle. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Okay. Where we get over. And I don't know about you, but at 2 p.m. today, the puppy bowl starts. So Pac Dawson has we have to get ready for a pub. And it's I know about the puppy bowl. That's I what you know. You know about the puppy <laughs> bowl. <laughs> yeah.
3: Priorities. It's all about the halftime and the commercials for our children with pragmatic issues. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh <my laughs> God. God. I did read that, is it Rihanna? That's how you Rihanna, say it?
2: everyone. The joke is that there's a football game in between before and after the Rihanna concert. That's okay. the joke.
1: I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I knew about that too. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. And folks, everybody else, thank you for joining us. But this is lovely. So moving forward, Aaron and I's lives are going to be on Sundays, probably 12 o'clock. So post early church service and before apparently major sporting events. But we appreciate y'all extending grace so that we could rest and recover. And then Aaron, absolutely smashing job today. Wonderful information. Thank you. Y'all follow us on first bite podcast on Instagram. We have some very heavy hitters coming up in the next couple of weeks. The first mm-hmm. Wednesday, leave us
2: a review too. We like those Michelle reads them now on I the do. podcast. I, so
1: yes, the first Wednesday of March, we actually have Joan Arvidson coming on. So a happy birthday month to She's us. Never
2: done a podcast before. She got
1: said, her she, she goes, I find this intriguing. I find you intriguing. We will do this. And I was like, <laughs> yes. And then just this past week, I had the joy of interviewing the ASHA CEO, Vicki Deal Williams, Andrea Falzeroni for the ASHA Leadership Development Program, covering ASHA Leadership Development as the year-long program, their Leadership Academy, as well as the Minority Student Leadership Program. And that's going to go out the middle of May for Better Speech and Hearing Month, as well as Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Month. So we've got some absolutely phenomenal courses and podcasts lined up. So thank you everyone, Erin. She the cat going um, up there. That cat makes the weirdest noises
2: I've ever heard in my whole life. Oh, you're, he you're sounds so like,
1: like the cat. I didn't hear the cat.
2: No, the no. cat was going up the stairs. He makes the weirdest noise I've ever heard in my whole life. It's <laughs> so that the alarming. It's dying. It's a cat that's, <laughs> Deaf and blind, and all the things.
1: <laughs> 17 years old, bless it. Oh, well, mm-hmm. well, everybody, I wish you well for your sporting event of the day. We're going to go watch I it. you know what home. it's called? Do you know what it's called? It's the Super Bowl. Thank you. Okay. I just want yeah, to make sure. But I mean, I know again, go Army beat me. We, we watch one game of the year. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep. Not the same league at all, but yeah.
1: Yeah. And there's like an AFC and an Wow, NFC! I know that because of AFC you. NFC is the students. best. Yeah. Yes. 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 I I listen to you. Yes. I love you. Okay, folks. Happy Sunday. Bye. Bye. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So, what is this alliance? Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep, Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association President's. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech-Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. and for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 Convention. My financial disclosures all right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that, a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech-Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy. But those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye.